First Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing to a, a very young pastor, Timothy. Uh, he's been left uh, behind at the church of Ephesus, and he's, he's, we've, we've looked as we've encountered in the first four chapters. He's got some obstacles he's overcoming. So this morning, Paul's going to continue in his instruction to Timothy. And while Timothy is a young pastor, and you might have a tendency to say, well, I'm not a pastor, I don't need to worry about this. No, I think that we do, because the things that Paul's going to instruct Timothy in are very valid for all of us as followers of Christ. Those that have decided to follow Christ, they need to understand and learn the things that the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy. It's important for our lives as well. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. In the very first directive, Paul is speaking to Timothy about older men. If you remember, Timothy has a problem. He's a young pastor. He's in a church where there's a lot of men that are older than him physically. You know, we're talking years here. So Paul's telling Timothy, he says, listen, do, do not rebuke an older man. And the older man, the word there, presbyteros, it literally means older in age, but it can also mean older in faith, like the, like the elder of the church. And, and here where Paul's talking about it, he's saying, as a young pastor, Pastor Timothy, it's not right for you to rebuke an older man. And he's not speaking of an elder of the church here. He's speaking of generally just somebody that's elder to him, just somebody that's older to him. He said, don't do it. And, and that word for rebuke is important. It's, it's, this is the only place that's used in the New Testament. It literally means to strike at, to strike at, or harshly rebuke, or to, to really come at him harshly, or to literally, if you can just imagine, a, a, a very harsh, a very, a, a very rough sort of rebuke. And Paul's telling Timothy, don't do that to older men. Don't do that. He's not saying that they don't need to be corrected. He's not saying that older men don't make mistakes. He's not saying that there's never a reason to, to, uh, to, to correct the older man's actions. He's just saying, Timothy, as a younger man, as a young pastor, what you need to do is not rebuke them, but you need to do what? Exhort them. He says, exhort him as a father. Exhort him as a father. The word exhort, it means to strongly encourage it means to strongly encourage him, to urge somebody to do something else, to appeal to them, you know, ask them to do these things. And, and here's what I've come to notice. Both rebuke and exhortation are ways of correcting behavior. All right. See, sometimes we think, well, exhortation, that's just like a cheerleader. We just, you just encourage people. You just say, go ahead, go on. Just You can do it. You can do it. That's exhortation. And it is. But rebuke and exhortation are both different ways that we can correct somebody's behavior. I'm concerned, or I think, that as people, we tend to rebuke other people when in, we really should be exhorting them. And I think sometimes we just, it's one of those things, and I found out in my life, as I studied this this week, I found out this is something I do. Oftentimes, I'll rebuke somebody because I'm not really sure what a rebuke looks like. I tend to think that a rebuke is me yelling at somebody. Or me scolding somebody. Or somebody shaking their finger at you like that. Or somebody just really putting you down. And I went to the Bible. I said, let me see if I can find some examples of rebuke in the Bible. And I did. I came up with three examples. There was lots of them, but I just chose these three. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, we have Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain rebukes God. He rebukes God. Listen to what he says. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Remember Cain, remember Cain had killed his brother Abel. And here he's rebuking God for what God has done to him, for what God, how, how God has told him he's going to be cast out. He's going to be, he's saying, God, you can't do that to me. That's, that's not fair. That's not right. He's actually rebuking God. A little farther down in Genesis chapter 12, we find, we find that Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, rebukes Abram or Abraham. It says this in Genesis 12, 18 and 19, Pharaoh called Abram and said, look what he says, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why, didn't you, why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. If you're not familiar, Abram goes into Egypt. He's married to what really would be his half-sister, but he says to her, listen, don't tell anybody we're married. You said, pretend you're, just tell everybody you're my sister. She's a beautiful woman. Pharaoh takes her, comes to find out that she's actually married to Abram, and he rebukes, he rebukes uh, Abram and he, by saying, why have you done this to me? What are you doing? What are you thinking, Abram? I, this could have went really bad. What's wrong with you? And then again in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus rebukes his disciples. He rebukes his disciples for, for lacking faith. The storm is brewing on the Sea of Galilee. And he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. You say, Rob, why does all this matter? Because I think sometimes we use the same type of language in a rebuke. You see, oftentimes the rebuke, not every time, but oftentimes, it begins with a question like, Why did you do this? What were you thinking? How come you did it that way? What's the, and what's the problem with, go, with confronting somebody that way? Now, Paul is telling this to Timothy in regards to the church, but I want to ask you, when we speak to our spouses, when we speak to our kids, when we speak to our employees, when we speak to our coworkers, do we know that we can communicate with a rebuke or we can communicate with an exhortation? We can communicate two different ways. I think sometimes we're communicating in a rebuke sense where they're taking it as a rebuke, but we're not realizing that we're doing it as a rebuke. When it starts with the question, how come? Why did you? How come you left your dirty clothes on the floor again? How come you didn't do your chores like I told you to do? How come you didn't mow the grass when I wanted it cut? How come you did it that way? Do you know that that's considered to be a rebuke? You're immediately questioning their ability. And what happens when someone rebukes you? The walls go up. Who do you think you are talking to me that way? Don't talk to me that way. But you know you can accomplish the same modification in behavior with an exhortation. The exhortation, the exhortation realizes that the, that the misbehavior, that the thing that needs to be corrected is going on, but it doesn't draw attention to it. Instead, it draws attention to the solution. Let me list a couple of exhortations out of the scriptures for you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. They're getting ready to go into the promised land, the Israelites. Joshua we know that he's scared because look what God says to him. He's going to exhort him in chapter 1, verse 7. God exhorts Joshua as he's preparing to cross the Jordan River. And here's what he says to him. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Why did God tell Joshua to be strong and courageous? Because he was scared to death. He was afraid. He, was, he didn't know what was going on. He, there, was a, there was a genuine concern. I'm getting ready to lead these couple of million people into the promised land. But instead of God coming and saying, what's wrong with you, Joshua? 
You saw what happened. You've been around wandering in the desert for the last 40 years. You saw when I brought water out of the rock. You saw when I brought the quail. You saw we crossed the Red Sea. You saw this. What's wrong with you? He doesn't say that at all. Instead, he comes at him with an exhortation. He says, be strong and of good courage. Doesn't it draw attention to the problem because Joshua already knows the problem. So often our kids already know the problem that we're correcting. So often our spouses already know what we're correcting. But yet, maybe if we did it with an exhortation rather than a rebuke. See, I think that we rebuke more than we think we do. I've noticed that this week about myself. As I studied this and prepared, I thought, you know, I wonder if I really do this. And I found that I really do do this. I really do rebuke without knowing that that's what I'm doing. Now, another place of exhortation, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul exhorts the believers at Colossae. He says, are you therefore, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Why would he tell them that? Because they weren't doing it. That's why he was writing the letter to them. So walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith. You've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Do you see the difference between the rebuke and the exhortation? We can do that. We accomplish the same thing. We're trying to accomplish a modification of behavior. And Paul very wisely says to young Timothy, he says, listen, when it comes to older men, when it comes to older men, don't rebuke them. They're not going to receive that from you, Timothy. But what you can do is you can exhort them. I would challenge all of us this week, spend more time exhorting than rebuking. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking there's not a time for rebuke, because there is. There is a genuine time to, to, to have, a, and we'll see that in, in chapter 5, verse 20. It says Paul is talking to, about the elders of the church. In first, back to 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. Rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. He's speaking to the elders in the church there, about the elders in the church. So don't make a mistake of thinking, well, I should never rebuke anybody or anything. No, there's a, there's a genuine time for that. But I think that we make the mistake when we offer the rebuke, when we mean it's our heart, it's our intention to offer exhortation. And I wonder what would happen in our training of our children. I wonder what would happen in our marriages. I wonder what would happen as we oversee employees or volunteers or in our, in our workforce as we begin to exhort more and rebuke less. Which one do you prefer? I prefer to, I'd rather be exhorted. Generally, I already know where the problems are. I, I created them. You know where the problems are in your life. You made them. We don't need those pointed out. But yet, I love how the Bible is, Jesus is always exhorting the apostles. He's always exhorting. One other place of of uh, exhortation, uh, John, verses, John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It's the woman who was caught in adultery. They brought her before Jesus, and he bent down. He started writing in the sand, and all the guys that had brought her, they all scattered. And he says this. He said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The exhortation is, go and you're forgiven, go and sin no more. The exhortation is, go. Don't you think that he could have said, well, now they're all gone, let's talk about this one-on-one. -on -one. Why are you being so stupid? Why have you done this in your life? Look what you've done. Why did you fall for this? He could have really laid it out there for her. But he simply exhorts her and says, go, sin no more. Don't, she already knew what she did wrong. I, I, this really spoke to me this week. This really did, because there really is a time to rebuke. In, the, in our lives, when it comes to our families and things like that and brothers and sisters. And there really is a time to say, hey, what were you thinking? But I don't want to confuse that time 
with a time of exhortation. Oftentimes, marriages, husbands and wives, how does the fight start? It starts with one rebuking another. You can change the behavior with an exhortation as opposed to a rebuke. Try it this week and see what happens. Just pay attention and see what you're doing this week. Am, am I, is my criticism, is what I'm about to say, is it coming in the question form? How come? Why did you? What were you thinking? There's a good chance it's, uh, the rebuke is about to follow. Or is it coming in the statement, the encouragement form that says, hey, you know, follow hard after the Lord. You know, why don't you spend some time in prayer? What, what, it can come a number of different ways. Is it a statement reminding you a promise of God? That's a great way to exhort somebody, reminding about a promise of God. But, like I said, I think we spend sometimes too much time rebuking and we don't realize we're rebuking it. Now, back to our scripture. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, don't rebuke an older man. Exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters with all purity. In other words, he's saying we're a family as Christians. We're a family. We're supposed to treat each other like a family. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to interact like a family, brothers and sisters and older women. You know, Timothy, you're going to have older women that are going to want to mother you in the church. Let them do it. Treat them like, you're, like you're their, they're your mother. Let them, let them be motherly of you. That's, 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 what they're, that's how they are. That's what they do. And then he says, younger women as sisters. Oh, we need to learn that in the church, don't we? Sometimes the church can become a place where oh, I wanna, I want, it's, it's, I'm going to meet my spouse I'm going to go find my new, next husband, a new husband, new wife. I'm going to go find him. I can meet him in the church. I want to, uh, that's where I'm going to, that shouldn't be the heart of coming to church. We should treat women. Men should treat women. Women should treat men with purity. There should be a sister, there, you know, there should be a sister thing or a brother thing going on there. Not that you won't meet your spouse and not that you can't. And it's a great place to meet a spouse in the church for those of you that are single. But it shouldn't, you know, a woman shouldn't have to walk into church and, and feel like she's being checked out. A, woman, a man shouldn't have to walk in the church and feel like he's being pursued by a woman simply because he's got a career and a, and a good life and he's done well for himself and he still happens to be single. You know, see, we have to realize that we, we need to be treating like, each other like brothers and sisters. A woman should never feel uncomfortable walking in a church. You know, it shouldn't be this place where, I, you know, a new, a new woman walks into the church and all of a sudden all the guys want to run over and meet her. But that shouldn't be that, it shouldn't be that way. It says it should be with purity. It should be with holiness. We should be pure thoughts towards one another. That's how it should be. He goes on, and he says in verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. See, Paul's going to tell us how, we're to, how the church is to treat widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before the Lord. What we're about to cover is real practical stuff. It's real. It, there's nothing doctrinal here. There's nothing hard to understand. It's going to be real simple. He says, honor. Honor the widows that are real widows, which gives us an indication there might be, there are going to be some that are going to be honored, some that are going to be supported by the church, and some that aren't. The word honor means to provide aid or financial assistance with the implication that it is an appropriate means of showing respect. So there's a time in, in this day where Paul, where the widows would be taken in by the church, they would be cared for by the church, but he makes a point here, only if they are real widows. So the kind of widows that are here in mind and those that are really, those that are really in need, those that have no other means, there's no other way for them to survive, no other way for them to live. It was seen as a Christian duty then, and I don't believe it's changed, it was seen as a Christian duty then to care for those who were genuinely destitute, those who really didn't have anything. But it also says, if any widow has children 
or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home. What's that mean? That's one of those words that we look at and go, what does that really mean? It means this. It means to fulfill one's socio-religious obligations. It means practice what you're preaching. It means live out your religion at home first. It means the way that you should, be, you should be ministering to your family first and foremost. In other words, what it's saying is if there's a woman, a widow, she's a widow, her husband has passed away, she, her kids should be taking care of her. Her family should be providing for her. It's a biblical principle that we see here. Now you say, Rob, we live in a different culture. We do live in a different culture. But the principle still remains. Certainly there's social security things available and there's retirements available and pension plans and all those kinds of things. But when all that stuff fails, it's still the family's responsibility to care for the widows. It's still the family's responsibility to care for the family. That's how it should be. And it's the church's responsibility as a family to make sure that the family's cared for. Let our children or grandchildren learn to practice their religion at home by caring for her. This is a very clear biblical obligation for children to care for their parents. So if you're young here and you're not married and you're single, you better believe that someday if you choose to follow Christ, the obligation to care for your parents is now put on your shoulders. Because Paul's going to say in a little while, even those that don't follow Christ do that. So as Christians, why wouldn't we more so do that? That should really be our heart. Now, does it mean that I have to move them into my house with me? Not necessarily. It says care for them. It says care for them. Maybe you care for them financially in their own home as long as possible. Maybe they need medical care. They have to go to a nursing home or, or whatever the situation is. Accept the responsibility. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we get this thing in our head, I have to move them in with me. That might not be the best, the best atmosphere for them. It might not be the best. It might be the parent is not willing to do that. You know, your obligation as a child only goes as far as the parent will allow you. I've talked to some people, my parents wouldn't have anything to do with me then you're free from the obligation. It's up to, you know, you can only care. And if your parents need the care, it doesn't mean you go live with them. They have to now come into your life. They have to come be part of your life. You have your own life. You have your own family by the time this usually happens. You have your own career. You mean, it doesn't mean you just give up and go, go move in with them now until the end of their life comes around. No, they have to then be absorbed into your life. And sometimes people aren't willing to do that. That's, then you're free from that obligation. You, don't, you can't make them allow you to care for them. You can only be willing to care for them. But it's the clear biblical obligation. Now, it says this, verse 5. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. This passage describes a real widow as one who is left alone, meaning nobody. She has no one else to support her. It shows that widows indeed are those that have neither children nor nephews nor relatives that either will, will or can help them or no near relatives alive. That was, uh, that was Adam Clark says that. It's, there's nobody else that's really left alone. There's nobody else there. Verse 5, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Lives in pleasure, what's that mean? It refers to the many widows being tempted to resort to immoral living as a way of supporting themselves. 
Back in that day, you can imagine, they didn't have Social Security. They didn't have the government benefits that we have in many parts of the world. They still don't have that kind of stuff. So what would happen is a woman that was really left alone, she was left with, how does she feed herself? How does she support herself? What, what is left? And, and sometimes women were going into immoral activities, such as even prostitution and things like that, in order to provide for themselves. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. But he's saying, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And he goes on, these widows, they, and he's, basically what he's saying is these types of widows, they have no claim to what the church is going to provide for them or what the church has to provide for them. You see, when it comes to the widows, when it comes to those that are truly left alone, the fact that you're left alone isn't the only standard for the church providing because Paul's going to list out some things. Look at verse 7, he says, these things command that they, may, that they may be blameless. Now, Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, teach these things. I want the people to know these things. They need to know there's a responsibility, a godly, biblical responsibility to care for their parents, to care for their family members. And look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. These things command a good pastor is going to teach these things. The word provide, the word provide, we, we see that word as in the English word, which means I, I, have to, I, have a, I have a provision, I have to provide for them financially, I have to provide that way. But in the Greek, it means something, it does mean that, but it means something a little different. It means to perceive beforehand, to foresee, to think ahead. It means to provide, means to live with the expectation that someday I will be providing for my parents. That means I need to be prepared financially to do that. I need to be prepared physically to do that. It's, it's the idea that I'm expecting this to happen. Not just simply I go about my life and whatever I do, and if it happens, it happens. No, it says Paul's instructing Timothy, be, tell the people to be prepared for it. It should be part of your, you know, when we do financial planning, when you go to a financial planner, we're going to plan your retirement, and we're going to save this much amount of money, and we're going to try to do this, and we're going to buy aggressive stocks, and we're going to get you a certain amount of money at retirement. This should be part of it. What if I have to care for my parents? It should be part of your financial plan for your future. Caring for your parents. It should be something that you account for. That's what Paul's saying here. Plan ahead for the caring of your family. And this is what God wants. He wants us to care for our families. I wrote this. Provisions for one's own relatives and especially for one's own immediate family is so clearly a Christian duty that to fail to do it amounts to a denial of the Christian faith. In the contemporary pagan world, there was a general acceptance of obligation towards parents. And it was unthinkable that Christian morality should lag behind the general pagan standards. Think about that. It's, it's, it, it, what he's saying here in the scripture, if you fail to provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Rob, are you saying I'm not saved? I don't think it's a matter of salvation. I'm, think, I'm thinking it's a matter of your, 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 your action, your lifestyle. It's worse than an unbeliever living. It, it, how could you not want to provide for your family? And again, I'm not talking about the parent who won't allow you to provide for them. I'm talking about the parent, the, the, the parent that says, I've got nothing, I have nothing, I need help. And the kid says, or the child says, well, I'm too busy. I don't have time. I can't afford it. You should be preparing for that. You should be planning for that is what the, what the Bible's saying here. Verses 9 and 10 are going to give us the requirements of the early church used to determine if a widow should be cared for by the church. You see, it wasn't just the fact that there's going to be some criteria that a widow has to meet. It's not just my husband passed away. It's now by myself. I've got no family. I come to the church and I say, here I am. Care for me. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Paul's going to make it very, very clear. Look at verse 9. 
Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Whoa, there's some heavy-duty requirements there. Look what they are. Must be at least 60 years old. He'll tell us why in future verses. He'll tell us why. But 60 years old, if under 60, he's going to tell them to remarry or they have ways to support themselves. And I think 60 back then was a little bit older than what we would consider 60 today. The life expectancy wasn't nearly as long as it is today in our culture. But notice what else it says. Must be the wife of one man. This is not somebody who's been married two or three times. This is the wife of somebody who's been a faithful wife of one man. Must be reported for good works. What's her reputation like? What is, what is she known as? How, does, how is she known in the church? How is she known in the community? She must be known for good works. Must have brought up children. Wait a minute, I thought if she had children, they would care for them. We're presuming that if she brought up children, they've passed away. Or perhaps she brought up foster kids. In that culture, it was common to dump babies off because parents couldn't afford them. Maybe this is a woman who raised a lot of children as foster kids. But you can see this is speaking towards her character. It's speaking towards the type of woman that she was. She must have brought up children, must have lodged strangers. That means she must be hospitable, willing to open up her home, must have washed the saints' feet. Now that means could mean two things. One, it could mean literally took the lowest position of a servant and washed the believer's feet. That was common in that day. When you would wear sandals, you would come into a house and the, the homeowner would then have the servant wash your feet because you've been walking all day. Or perhaps it's just speaking of a servant's heart. The idea that she'll serve in any way possible. She wants to serve and wants to help. Wash the saints' feet. Must have relieved the afflicted. What's that mean? It means she's taking care of the sick. Somebody's sick, needs help, she's right there. Somebody needs, you know, they need, they need something from the store, they need to run up to Rite Aid to pick something up, she goes. I know they didn't have Rite Aid, but that's the kind of heart that she had. Do whatever needs to be done. Anything that needs to be done. How can I help? That's the heart that she has. Anything I can help must diligently follow every good work. So her character is that of a Christian. Her character is one that says, I'm really here to serve. You see, those widows who were accepted into the support of the church, the ones that the church would support back then, they must not only be true widows, but they must have the godly character. They're called to a job. They're going to be given, they're going to be praying daily for the church. They're going to be serving in the church. It's not just a matter of a handout. And what Paul's telling us by laying out these requirements that, you know what, if they don't meet these requirements, it's okay to say no. It's okay. See, sometimes in the church we think that just because somebody needs something, we have to meet it. So just because somebody asks for something, we get people all the time that come in and ask for money from the church. They need help. They need, can you help me pay my rent on my storage unit? Can you help me pay my cell phone bill? Can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? And we have to discern which ones we help and which ones we don't. We have a committee that does that. They fill out an application. It goes to a committee. We pray about it. We look at it and go, which ones are we going to help? But I can tell you when someone in our church needs help, we're there. We want to help. This is our, this is our family. You know? Now, will we help you support a bad habit? No. Am I going to help you pay your rental bill on your storage building where all your stuff is stored? Probably not. Not unless there's a good reason to. But it's, it's, the, it's the picture, it's the idea, but as a family, you know, I don't have to help. If the drug addict comes in and says, Can you, you know, I've spent my whole life doing drugs, now I've got nothing, and uh, do I, will you help me? It's okay for me to say no, is, is what, what we're saying here. That's what Paul's saying. There's certain requirements on, on these widows who, who, who and how we help them. 
But when it comes to the younger ladies, though under 60, look at verse 11. He says, but refuse the younger widows. Tell them no. Tell them no. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that younger women, younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. See, what would happen is if you were a widow and you came to the church and you wanted to be supported by the church, you essentially made a pledge to the church. I am coming to the church. I'm going to, I'm going to serve. I'm going to work in exchange for the support that I receive. And what Paul says, refuse the younger widows. Those that are under 60, he says, refuse them. For when they've begun to grow wanton, and that word for wanton, when they begin to feel sexual desire, when they begin to want to remarry, when they find a guy that all of a sudden they like and they begin to want to get into a relationship, when they begin to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. This is happening. This would be, this would be a picture of, let's say that a, a woman, it, it, we'll just use an example of 40, her husband passes away, her, her life is falling apart, her heart is broken, she never wants to get married again, I just want to serve the Lord in the church. The church takes her in, and then what happens a few years later? Somebody walks in, and she meets somebody that she may, maybe, now there's some healing that's taking place, there's some growth that's taking place, but she's pledged her rest of her life to the church, she's pledged to serve the Lord in this area. And what, what Paul's saying is here, she's going to have condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. She's going to feel guilty about this, is what she's saying, is what he's saying. We don't want to trip her up further, we don't want to put her into something under an obligation that she can't fulfill. So what he's saying is, listen, if they're younger, just be there, support them, but don't bring them into the fold where the church is full, supporting her full time. It's good for her to take the time to mourn, take the time to grieve, but it's okay for her to go remarry is what he's saying there. We don't want her to have condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. In other words, she would have said, I wanted to serve God. I wanted to be part of the fellowship. I was going to serve the saints, but now I met this new guy. And, you know, we've fallen in love, and now I don't know what to do because I made a promise to God. Now I've got a guy that's interested in me. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I'm torn here. And Paul says, let her go get married. Don't bring her into the fold like that. It's better for her to go get married. And then he says in verse 13, and besides, and besides, like in addition to, not only is it better for her to marry, and besides, look at this, they learn to be idle. This isn't just for women, for for anybody can, do you know that you can learn to be idle? You can learn to like to do nothing. You can learn, you ever met somebody who can't sit still? I'm one of them, okay? I can't sit still. I gotta be up doing something. I, very, very rarely can I sit still for very long. I like to be doing something or my mind's always going. I, but you can learn, you can teach yourself to be idle. And that's what Paul's saying. They learn to be idle. That means they're learning, they're learning what? They're learning the free ride. They're learning the church is supporting me. My, my service is kind of diminishing. I'm learning, I'm living with my handout. It's the expectation. I'm learning to be idle. They're learning to be idle. And when that happens, they become gossips and busybodies, saying things that they should not or ought not. So Paul's saying, listen, for a younger woman, if you put her into the fold with the older women, they're gonna, they're gonna learn to be idle because the older women can't work like the younger women. She's going to adapt herself to being like the old. If, if we're talking bringing women into the church and taking care of them for, that are over 60 that have nobody, you know, at that day, that was, that, that's getting pretty up there in years. There's not a whole lot of work they're going to be able to do, not like a younger woman's going to be able to do. So he, he said the younger women, they're just going to learn to be idle. 
They're going to be busybodies. They're going to walk around from house to house talking, gossiping, saying things that they shouldn't. He says in verse 14, this is why, or therefore, I desire the young widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You see why Paul's not saying, just get out. We're not going to take care of you because you're not a certain age. Paul's saying, I know how Satan works. And if you bring a young woman into the church, into the fold too early, she's going to become a gossip. She's going to, she's going to learn uh, to be idle. Paul's saying, don't let that happen. Let her go out and let her work. Let her marry. Let her spend time with, with, with the men. Let her, let her do this so that she can fulfill the reason that God created for her. As why? So the, to give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And Paul's saying, by the way, I'm speaking from experience because he says in verse 15, for some have already turned aside after Satan. Some have already, some have done this. They came in, they've come into the church. The church has been supporting them and it's actually driven them away from the faith. Paul says, don't let that happen. It's better to leave them out there on their own. Let them make it in life than to try to do it this way because it will turn them aside. Paul understands our human nature and how Satan will exploit us. He Paul has witnessed this firsthand and is encouraging the younger widows to remarry and to go on with their lives. Not right away, when time is ready, he says. Verse 16, our final verse for this morning. It says, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. This is the third time in this section that Paul has alluded to this. When things are repeated in the Bible, what's it mean? It means it's pretty important. It means it's something we need to pay attention to. It means, it means it's, it's, it's there for a reason. In verse 4, he says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for it's good and acceptable before the Lord, before God. In verse 5, he said, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She who is really a widow. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what's clear is the Bible's putting out an example that there is a biblical obligation for us to care for our family members. There's a biblical obligation for that. Again, understanding that they have to be willing to be cared for. They have to be willing to be cared for. This morning, we looked carefully at the difference between a rebuke and an exhortation. I hope you caught that. And I hope that this week you'll look and say, when it comes to you're talking to your husband or your wife, or you're talking to your kids, and you'll ask yourself after you've made the statement, because that's always the way it happens, was that a rebuke or an exhortation? I meant it to be an exhortation, but it, was, it came out as a rebuke. I hope you catch that, because that's going to be really, really important in communicating with our relationships in life. Husband, wife, parent, child, employee, employer, coworkers, even with your friends. Know that there's a time for a rebuke. There's a time where you have to say, what were you thinking? What are you, stupid? Don't live like that. That's okay sometimes. But it shouldn't be in our general, everyday conversations. We can change the behavior with an exhortation and probably get the response a lot quicker. I find I rebuke my kids more than I should. I didn't even realize it. I never knew that I was doing it. But I always start with the question, what are you doing? Why were you thinking that? Tell me, what you, tell me what's going on in your head. 
But how, I already know what was going on in their head. I was a kid. I just want them to tell me. I don't know why. Wouldn't it be better if I just exhorted them and give them the word of God and encourage them as opposed? What about with your husbands and your wives? How often is it a, is it a rebuke? It would be much better if you could pr- exhort them in some way. What about with the people in the fellowship? Don't we all want to be exhorted? We love to be exhorted. We love to be encouraged. We love to be given the word of God. We love to be lifted up. We hate to be rebuked. But yet, sometimes that's what we're doing, not meaning it. We also saw this morning the clear biblical responsibility to care for our family and our parents. Don't let that slip by. That's something important that we need to do. We need to make sure as Christians that when we say, Lord, I'll follow you, we also accept his word and say we'll follow his word. That there's an obligation there as a believer that says, I need to take care of my parents. I need to do that. I, I need to be the, my parents shouldn't be left on the street for, by themselves. I, I shouldn't leave it to somebody else to take care of it. And then if nobody, if, the, if, the, if there's nobody, if there's nothing left, then the church has an obligation to care for them. If they met those requirements that we talked about earlier. If they've been the wife of one husband, if they've served the saints, and all those if words that we covered previously. If they've done these things, then the church has an obligation to provide for them. Two big things this morning. Exhortation and rebuke and the caring for our parents. Now, maybe you didn't come in expecting to hear those things, but I hope that we understand that we have an obligation. When we sing, you're a good, good father, we trust that what he says is what's going to be best for us. Now, there might be somebody here going, well, I don't, I, I, that, that you just, I don't want to do that. It's best for you. He doesn't tell us to do anything so, so he can punish us. He tells us to do it because you're going to be blessed by it. It might be you stepping out to care for your parent that, you've been, that you haven't spoke to in years. All of a sudden, you might be able to reconcile that relationship. You might have a chance to share Christ with them because of all of a sudden you just responded to what God said to do. You're not doing it for them. You're not doing it because they deserve it. You might have had bad parents. They might have been horrible parents. You don't do it for them. You don't do it for those reasons. As followers of Christ, we do it because God tells us to do it. We're good employees because that's what God calls us to be. We're godly husbands and godly wives because that's what God calls us to be. Not because our husband or wife deserves it, because most of the time they don't. We do it because what God calls us to be, because we're people who want to live according to God's word, and we understand that he is a good father, and that when we conform into his word, it really will be best for us. It won't be the easiest, I promise, but it will be the best, both now and in eternity. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just love traveling through your word, especially when you come into these real-life applications. Lord, you know Sometimes in our life, when it comes to exhortation and rebuke, we get them confused. We can accomplish the same thing in different ways. May you open our eyes this week. May we see, are we doing a little more rebuking than we should be? Could we replace it with exhortation, accomplish the same thing, and not sever the relationship? Even if it's momentary? And Lord, when it comes to our families, may we see them in a new light. May we see the obligation that you've given us. May we trust that you'll provide. Or may we look at our family and not see it as a burden, but may we see it as a chance for you to provide. Maybe we can't even afford to care for our families. But Lord, we know that you can. As we take that step of faith, you'll meet us there. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, for those that want to hear it. What a blessed time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.